Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, we're taking your toaster to the bank. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. Today on the show, we're talking about money and empowerment. Neil Godfrey is the New York Times number one best-selling author with 28 books on kids and money, family finance, work-life balance, entrepreneurship, and female empowerment. She is writing her 29th book on gray divorce and empowering women to take control of their financial lives after divorce right now. She joins us today to share her perspective on financial empowerment, and we are thrilled to bring her expertise to the show. Neil, welcome to the toaster. Thank you, Steph and Pete. It's good to be here. Important topic. Important topic, yeah. And we've been, you know, we've been talking about um, sort of how to frame this conversation, the act of this conversation. And I think there are two perspectives I'd like you to weigh in on over the course of our conversation today. Uh, both the act of how kids relate to money in the act of divorce, and how you encourage and uh, and guide women in getting their financial lives in uh, in order after divorce. I, I know both of those areas are areas that you have a particular interest and expertise. Uh, let's start with the act of of marriage breaking up and and where you see as the the principal areas of of struggle for women post divorce. Well, one of the things with divorce and women is that men tend to look at uh, money as kind of the business side of a relationship. And women, when they look at marriage and divorce, it's they're still looking at the trust. I loved him. I trust him. I believe him. He will never hurt me. And unfortunately, in a divorce situation, um, a man's standard of living goes up and a woman's goes down exactly for this reason. So it's a whole psychological way to look at divorce. And it's very hard for a woman to kind of get up to speed on that. And we still see it, unfortunately, whether it's with a young divorce or a gray divorce. I think that is a a really interesting thing, and I think it's part of it is because you know as much as we try not to have uh, you know a lot of gendered conversations around uh, you know money experience right now, uh, it it does feel like as you say this is still something that that we see with people who uh, when generally women come out of the relationship they don't have the uh, the experience with the money, and even if they do have experience with money, they don't have experience with their money. Those two different things, like a, a fundamental understanding of how the finances work versus, to your point about trust, a fundamental misunderstanding about how their money works? It's important to have a gender conversation, um, just like it's important to have a racial conversation. These things are real. And we unfortunately take baggage in from our childhood and from our culture and we, we carry this baggage around and this baggage still makes women think that we can't handle money as well as a man can. And when you start that conversation, you find out that there's a huge amount of disempowerment. And also within a relationship, there are roles that get established. And when those roles are carried through the relationship, again, you're dragging, you know, baggage around. You know, we still have a situation where we have to have the babies that we haven't figured that one out yet. And in a lot of cases, the women are the primary caregivers for those children and raising those kids. And then a lot of the monetary stuff has shifted to men. Now, even though millennials are way more woke than we were and Gen Z coming up, we still have that baggage. They're still watching typical roles within the household. And in a lot of cases, unfortunately, modeling them. And that's disempowerment. And that spells trouble. On that disempowerment and spells trouble point, do you believe, one, that handling your finances is just a learned skill? 
it doesn't necessarily have to be overly complicated, but some people get paralyzed with just the thought of having to do it. And it's scary and they've never done it before, but it's not necessarily that difficult. Would you agree that it's a learned skill? 100%. And there's, you know, money's been, you know, this mystery and you have to be really smart. And whenever I empower women to take charge of their financial lives and maybe to get investing for the first time in the stock market or even in the crypto world today, and they go, that's it. Right. That's, that's it. That's like pulling the curtain back. That's all you got. It's that, right. Yeah. It's like, that's it. That's it. And women are actually better investors than men because women keep the eye on the ball. What's the money for? Not about betting or winning or, you know, day trading or any of that risky stuff. On average, over time, women do way better than men when it looks, you know, when it comes to investing. In a divorce, what I see is to have the gender conversation, as you say, it's important to have that. Men view it as winning in divorce. I get to keep it. Women view it as security. I can get the car to get the kids to school, to get to my job, right? Is that a fair statement? 100%, absolutely dead on. And women want to know and to have somebody sitting in front of them as a professional, what's the money for? What are my goals? So it may be to get the kids to college or it may be about retirement or it may be whatever that is, that emergency fund. And they want to know what what's it for. Now, help me build that portfolio to reach those goals. Not, I want to be at the cocktail party being, you know, in this case, macho saying, oh, my friend recommended a stock and it's up 56%. Because women also know if it goes up, it also goes down. They want to be able to sleep at night. Their financial world is something that helps them reach their goals, not something in terms of a self-esteem that I won or I bet or I'm cool. Well, that's something I've talked to my son about. He's now 18, learning to manage his money, taking small steps, teaching him, learn skill. One of the things I've always told him is money talks real money whispers. So if you're the guy at the cocktail party talking about the fancy stock pick and you're hearing that conversation, what I've tried to teach my son is the guy saying that doesn't have money. Now, I personally don't care whether he has money or not. It's none of my business. It's not something I care about. If someone makes a million dollars, two million, three million, a billion, I say, good for you. I don't particularly want to hear about it. I don't particularly want to hear about your sex life either, right? I mean, so why don't... It might be more interesting. It might be more interesting. Yeah, right. Be open to that challenge. Well, Neil, you know, know, when when you said women know that, you know, when things go up, they go down, I didn't know what we were talking about for a minute there, but I hear what you're saying. We flipped into a different show, Pete. I mean, We sure did. Yeah, I'm, Yeah. I'm, I'm good. But Seth, I never want people to confuse net worth with self-worth. And I want you to be able to raise those kids to know you're not the money you earn. Just because you're an investment banker and make gazillions does not mean you're a better human being than the violinist who is playing for the Philharmonic and is not earning a whole lot of money. So if you don't raise them as little kids, understanding that Money is really about choice. And that same dollar can go to buy drugs or it can go to charity. It's the user's choice for them to have that empowerment to go build their goals and then the budget that matches that, then they're they're pretty much in trouble. I think that's a great point about net worth versus self-worth. And along that topic, I just recently had a client say, well, how do I compare? I'm in my early 40s. How do I compare on my net worth compared to others in my age bracket? And I explained to them that that's not a comparison I typically do, but from my observations, and I deal with some very high-end clients. So I said, against these really high-end clients, people that are business owners that have had whatever investment bankers like you point out, there might be more net worth. I said to this person, But what's impressive about you, if you compare your income 
compared to your net worth, percentage-wise, you're far outpacing these other people. They might have 10 million in the bank, but when they're making 3 million in a year, that's not really very good. If you're making 50 grand and you've got 3 million in the bank, you're doing something right. You're living within your means. So I always like to tell people, look, when you're talking about money, one, like you say, your choices might be, what do you choose to do for a profession? And if you know that you want to go be a high school teacher, I don't care what college you went to. If you're in the public school system, you're going to be underpaid. But that doesn't mean you can't build and save to live the way that you want to live based on the chosen income that you've put yourself in that bracket. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think what, you know, what I'm impressed with, Seth, is that you're going to sit there with your client and say, hey, what do you want life to look like? Let's work from your goals and work backwards in terms of what do you need? And what do you want current life to look like? Where do you want to go? Do you want to, you know, travel? Do you want to work less? Do you want to work more? All those things. What do you want? And then moving forward, what do you want your retirement to look like? When do you want to retire? Do you want to live with friends? I call it living in a pod, another book, um, where you can live with a friend or friends and share expenses. What do you want it to look like? Then as a you know, financial professional, then you go and you build backwards. Okay. You're going to need this amount. Right. And when I'm representing people in the divorce, I always tell them, I can tell you what the law should provide for you when I can get you into settlement is up to the financial planner to tell you what to do with it. But to your point, and I think this is kind of a, a service we provide here is sometimes I will have clients and I will say, I can get you, I'm just making up a number. I can get you $5,000 a month in alimony. I think that's what the court should award you. And it's going to cost X number of dollars to get there to trial because your spouse is going to pay five. But then I ask, is three enough? Is three good enough to meet your goals? And one of your goals might be avoiding litigation. And it's worth not taking the two extra grand because I can still do what I want to do. I can work the job. I can get the kids. I can have time off in the summer and it's not worth the fight. So I always have those conversations. What are we arguing about? What can you live with? I agree, Seth. And, and, and the teaming of, you know, the lawyers and the financial planners, um, and frankly, the friends who are there and maybe psychological help to get you over that hump. We need to look at this as business, a divorce is business, not emotional. Leave that at home. That is the, exactly the, the thing I think we run into all the time in these conversations, which is to what degree is your, uh, is your settlement tied to ego, right? Tied to your emotional need for something other than the, the practicality of your plans going forward, right? Is it, is it some, a vendetta? Are you trying to get back at your former spouse? Are you, do you just have to win something? And what is the value? What is the price, as Seth says, that you'll put on that? Is, is it two grand a month? Cause we can go to court and fight all the live long day. As long as that is a value to you, it may not seem entirely, you know, rational, but we can fight. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think also the other thing in, in all of this are those hidden assets that people don't even think about in terms of 401ks, in terms of in the old days, we had pension plans, even some goofy stuff like splitting up, you know, air miles. You know, I, I was dealing with some people, there are a million air miles, you know, that makes a difference. Um, what are we really dividing here? And, and the emotion is very tough. Because you've got to take it, you know, take a step back. Can I let go of that family home that maybe is way too big to serve me right now? And what's it going to cost to keep it going? What's it going to cost for me to have that piece of real estate? What do I want my life to look like? Can I downsize? Can I live within whatever, you know, Seth can get? out of that settlement? Is it real? And by the way, by the way, by the way, that that's as long as I'm, I'm calling it he, because there are obviously women that get, you know, that have to be 
the the breadwinners and and pay their spouse. But let's call it he for now. If he's not able to work and he's not able to have an income, he's not paying you. So you better think about it too. It's not alimony forever if it isn't, if he's not working. On that point, I get this all the time. Someone will be interviewing lawyers and the spouse calls and says, look, I haven't worked for 10 years. I've been raising the children. And I said, okay, we talk about alimony. And my first advice is you need to start looking for work or we need to dust off the resume. We need to get an evaluation on, on what do you want to do? What have you done in the past? Did you get to college? Did you not go to college? What, what were your hopes and dreams for your employment now that you have children? Have those changed? And the question I get every time is, wait, I don't understand. And I say, what don't you understand? They say, well, I talked to three other lawyers that said, don't get a job because it will help my alimony claim. And I said, one, that's assuming that the other side doesn't go to court and prove that you could be earning more money. And I said, and two, that's assuming you get an alimony award and that it actually gets paid. Because it's a piece of paper. Those a lot big of big assumptions. assumptions. And I said, the best thing you can do for yourself in my perfect world for your case, you would get no alimony. And they freak out. And I said, stick with me. If you get no alimony, it means you are financially self-sufficient. And that is the best thing you can do for yourself. And if you have a $10,000 alimony claim, and I'm just using these for round numbers, and you can make up six of that by working, and now you're only counting on this guy for four, you're better off there than counting on this guy for 10. Right. And it goes back to what Pete said too. Is it about being vindictive or is it about being able to close this chapter and move forward. And it's very difficult because you're in the whole thing. Now, if you're hiring me and you're like, look, I want to know about every single asset. Here are a bunch of assets that people miss. You mentioned one of them. And these are usually, check your local jurisdiction to be divided because they're, they're marital. they could be marital assets. Airline miles, right? Credit card points. Memberships to clubs. Sometimes you have a down payment on... Um, a buy-in for a club, whether it's a social club or a country club. So remember that. Um, people's vacation days that get paid out, those were earned during the marriage. Um, these are all potential assets to be divided. And the reason I mention them isn't that you're necessarily going to say, you have 28 vacation days, you get paid $1,000 a day, that's you know, we, we do the math and I'm entitled to half that, but you might just say, look, I am entitled to half that, but you can keep the vacation days. I don't care about half of that, but I want this. Absolutely. It becomes a bargaining chip. I'm with you. And I've, by the way, been married and divorced three times. So I consider myself an amazing expert in all this. We call that a frequent flyer in my business. I love that. It is. It is true. True. I, I wanted. You can't pay me with points, though. <laughs> no, no. I, I really. Oh, never mind. All right. We also need to talk about pre, because Pete, you jumped into this. Like when you're in divorce, I'm into the the pre planning part in terms of the prenuptial, and and what to do and how to protect yourself and what the hell that means. Yeah, let's do it. What the hell does it mean? It's one of Seth's favorite topics. What do you think about prenups? I mean, if there's a disparity in terms of income, if it, you know, is a second, third, fourth marriage, um, whatever that is, and you've got kids and you've got assets and this one has this and this one has that, yes, you need to have that discussion. If you're coming into a marriage to begin with and you're both, you both pretty much have nothing and you're both young, eh, it kind of doesn't matter. You're building a life together. But if there is anything that there is pre-existing assets and or, by the way, liabilities, because we have to look at the debt when you come in to a marriage to all of a sudden, ta-da, I'm taking on your student debt. Really? Am I? You have to look at that stuff. Um, and I, my thing about a prenup is it's a really tough conversation to have. I love you. I love you. I trust you. I trust you. Now, would you mind signing this document? Yeah, I love you. I love you. I trust you. I trust you. But if you fucking cheat on me, I'm going to get half that shit. And by the way, <laughs> by the way, my grandmother will right roll over in her grave if 
her china goes to your new wife. Just saying. That's right. But the deal is this is where the parents and grandparents can jump in and help with the conversation. It's about the conversation. It's one thing for Seth to recommend it. It's another thing to have that conversation. You know, when you're, I love you, I love you, and now sign the prenup. This is when mom and dad, grandma and grandpa can jump in and say, hey, look, these are assets that we've provided for through blah, 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 blah. Not the trust fund because, you know, that's protected, but it's the other stuff. And it's very important for us. So you, mom and dad, can hang it on yourselves and help your kid out and say, I want to have that conversation with your kid and the new one there. And as the married, the couple to be married, don't, don't surprise this, you know, woman or man. Don't, don't sabotage. Now we're going out to eat. And by the way, it's, this is, we need to tell you our concerns. Right. There's two parts to prenups that I tell people are the most important. One is like you're saying, the conversation. And people have a difficult time talking about money and finances. And you're about to enter into, whether you realize it or not, a binding contract when you get married because the states tell you what to do with your money if you get divorced. That's a contract. So you should know what those rights are in your responsibilities when you're getting married. So I've had people come to me and saying, you're a divorce lawyer. We don't ever want to get divorced. We're getting married. What should we do about our money? And I say, well, who am I representing? Or if you both are just call, you know, want some information, I can't represent either one of you as a joint. But if we're going to do a prenup, here's what we need to do. And I explain what Florida law is now. I explain what happens if they would get divorced now and use that as a framework for them to discuss how they want their lives to be. And when they're getting gifts from parents or grandparents, I make it very clear to the parents or grandparents, if you want the gift to go to both of them, then you put both their names on the check. You put it into a joint account. If you want it to go separately, you do it separate and we can deal with that issues on the prenup. But having those conversations, to me, at some levels are more important than the actual outcome because the outcome of what they decide to do upon divorce is different for every family. Some people do it like, hey, if we're getting married and we have children, then I'm going to get X if we have children or not get children because I'm going to want you to stay home and raise the children. And then you say, well, if I'm staying home raising the children, I'm out of the workforce for 10 or 15 years. How do I get compensated for that? Because my income could be more then. So we needed to have those conversations. But the ultimate outcome is client-driven. It's not good nor bad nor different. It's just different, right? It's their decisions, but there's that imbalance of power because the one with the money is going to be like, aren't you marrying me because you love me? Why do you care about the money? The one without the money is going to go back to security. Well, you love me. Don't you want to provide? And I should be secure to raise our children. And and that's where it is. And then now we start having difficult conversations, but getting through those, I think are vitally important. I think it's actually build stronger marriages. I agree. And I open up the conversation to make it broader. Um, I was working with Oprah for years and did a zillion shows with her. And one of the things was talking about this and talking about money and opening up those money conversations. And what we found is what Oprah and I found was that it's easier for couples to talk about sex than it is for them to talk about money. And it was so funny because it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've had sex with this guy. You've taken your clothes off. But when it comes to money, it's like, oh, that's personal. Like, hold it. You know, like, wait, wait, wait. And I think it's always best. And I don't know what Oprah's views on this or your views on this. It's best to have the conversation about money when you're not wearing clothes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's interesting, Seth, because I always did it at a restaurant and I always had clothes on. Oh, you go to different restaurants than I go to. <laughs> I obviously go to colliding right now. Yeah, I go yeah. to different restaurants. Okay, I, I have to look at at the restaurants. Maybe maybe it's a home delivery. <laughs> but um, who's going to handle the money, and what is this going to look like? Those are all the the questions that you're asking, Seth. And then you can open it up. That you know, I think we both have to know where. What's the debt? 
you know, where is the money? How much is it? What's your salary? You know, all those things, your assets, your liabilities, what are your dreams? What are your hopes? Now, all of a sudden, it's a larger conversation. And then, you know, are both people going to work? And if not, like you said, Seth, what does that look like? And I think it's important for both of us to know the money situation. I know it's a pain in the neck, but we have to each month switch off. You pay the bills one month, I pay the bills the next month. And we do that. This has to be, you know, the same way we do other stuff within the household. Then it's a broader conversation. Then you kind of ease into the prenup and then you can say, look, you know, my family feels strongly about it because these are assets they're passing on. And I think even like you're saying on the conversation with maybe a younger couple that is just getting started and we say, well, we don't really have anything. I think it's important that you both run your credit reports and you share them with each other. You say, here are my finances. Like you can trust and verify, but that's a way also to say, yeah, I pay off my credit cards all the time or, Hey, you know, I was a student. I kind of ran up some credit cards and I'm paying, trying to pay them down. And then you can have a conversation like, Whoa, do we do a consolidation loan? Do we get a better interest rate? How much are we going to put towards that on a monthly basis before we do other things that we want so we can clear that debt? And now you're starting to talk about really building a financial life together. And it's not one person's just running it and the other person is either paying it or not. But then that's setting common goals and that actually can bring you together. And don't get into the the mistake that I see a lot of people make where, well, God, he just bought a new set of golf clubs. And so I wanted to go on this trip with the girls. And now you both are spending money you don't have because why is he allowed to spend it and I'm not? But ultimately, you both are just running up debt. 100%. And and we know 85% of all divorces are due to money issues. It's just the way it works. Hey, Pete, it's back to school season. We're right in the midst of it. Buying clothes, buying the uniforms. And some people are going through a divorce and trying to manage all that. Maybe it's a new school, different houses, driving back and forth, getting the routines down. But there's one thing we can always agree on is that it's important to keep kids safe, especially when alcohol is a concern. That is the truth. And on How to Split a Toaster, you know our mission is saving relationships. And uh, that is uh, all about what uh, our fantastic sponsor this week is is doing here too, Soberlink. Uh, we have partnered with Soberlink to help offer resources to help you navigate the school year, the school season, as uh, you are also navigating your divorce process. That's why we've partnered with them. They have a remote alcohol monitoring technology that's created to keep your kids safe. If you're the parent that believes the other parent has a problem with alcohol, this device will give you real-time information that that parent is sober. And if you're the one that's being accused, maybe wrongfully so, that you can't control your drinking, this gives you a way to prove with an independent third-party verification to the court if necessary, judge, I'm good. The kids are safe. We're focused on them. I'm not focused on drinking. So it really is vital, especially with its breathalyzer that has the facial recognition with the real-time updates that I'm talking about. Soberlink has partnered with hundreds of thousands of people to help document proof of their sobriety and their real-time peace of mind that comes with this device in child custody cases. They're currently offering a free back-to-school and divorce packet. This includes a Q&A with a top divorce attorney, your back-to-school checklist is going to help you out, communication tips, and more. Uh, the only thing, Seth, I don't think they have coupons for uniforms, whether they're for your kid or for you. I don't know. That's a shame. There really would, should be should, coupons should for be uniforms. Coup, u- coupons, un- uniform coupons. Anyway, request your packet without the uniform coupon at soberlink.com slash toaster. That's www.soberlink.com slash toaster. Thank you, Soberlink, for sponsoring How to Split a Toaster. I think we have an area here where you can help a lot of people, which is uh, how to handle 
your kids and their relationship to money. And, and I know you have you have a particular expertise in kids and relation related to money writ large, but particularly in a divorce. Um, can you walk us through how you you handle this? Yeah, the biggest thing in divorce with a kid is to sit them down to explain what's going on and what a kid of any age wants to know ultimately is how does it affect them? Where are they going to live? Do they get to go to summer camp? Do they, you know, are they still going to be able to have whatever? And they need to know how it affects them. They need to know what is this picture going to look like? Now, the truth is they've seen you argue. They know there's tension within the household. The biggest thing for a kid is a kid always thinks somebody's dying. And what you need to do, and Seth, I'm sure you've seen this a million times, is you are going to be okay. We are both going to be okay. This is work in progress. The truth is, we don't know what it's going to look like, but we love you. We're going to be there for you. And as this starts to unfold, do not wait for it all to be worked out because it takes a very long time for it to be worked out. There may be a custody situation. There may be a, somebody's moving to a different state situation. There may be a zillion different things, Seth, that you've seen. But the big thing is tell the kids early on. And in terms of money, if it's a belt tightening situation, be honest with them. You know what? We're going to have to live on a budget. We're going to have to have things differently or done differently economically. But you know what? We're in this together. But when you when you do that, when you say you're in it together, then you're in it together. You can't start cutting all the kids stuff and then they see you spending it on you because you're going to break that trust. Totally. And you design the budget with them. Hey, this is what we've got. My whole thing is get the kids involved. These are the bills. Show the kids the bills. These are older children, obviously. What it's costing us to live. You know what? It's not going to make sense in a divorce situation. We need to, we need to reduce the expenses. It means downsizing house. We're going to be together. Who cares if we live in a smaller house? Let's go look for smaller houses. Let's go do this together. We can't have two cars or three cars or whatever. We need one. Let's go look for cars. Hey, kids, go online and see what you can do. Get the kids as involved as possible. We found out even during September 11th when, you know, I'm from New York and when we had the biggest tragedy that had hit the city, the kids who were involved, the ones that when, when the parents or the survivors or the families got the kids involved, they were way more healthy than the kids, you know, where the parents said, Hey, don't think about this. Don't get involved. I want you to be a kid and don't turn the TV on. It doesn't work like that. By the way, you know, half of marriages are going to end in divorce. The kids know people. They know the ones where they're fighting and they know the ones that work out. And the deal is you want to share with them. Our goal is to have this as pain-free as possible for you guys, but it is a change. It's not necessarily going to be pain-free. And with the kids, something that we've done in my own household is I say, look for leakage. And that's those little things that we spend money on that we don't even think. It's just like a little leaky drip. And the biggest one is the apps on your phone. How many apps do you pay $4.99, $3.99 a month for, $10 a month for that you don't really use? You just forget about them. And so uh, some, from time to time, we just go through our phones like, hey, is there any game that we were playing that we liked for a while and we stopped playing? Let's delete the app, right? There's little things like that that ties to them. Show them how much their phone costs. You want to get a teenager's attention. You want your phone. That's how much it costs. How much can you go make an hour? <laughs> you know? And also let them get involved. Let them look at the streaming services on the, you know, that you're using and say, okay, come up with a, with a bundle that's going to save us. Okay. This is what we can afford for a vacation. You guys go work it out and figure out what we can do for whatever that is. And just like you're saying, Seth, get them 
involved in the drip, drip, drip of stuff going out. Come on, we don't need to buy coffee and water every day. Let's go figure out what we're going to do. We don't need to go out twice a week. We don't need to do. Let's talk about it. What's most important? The other thing that, I mean, I know I did with my son, once he got to an age, we were at the grocery store and I said, hey, you know, he's old enough to go pick out whatever. I said, hey, we go get out some fresh strawberries. And I was on the other side of the grocery store and he comes back with fresh strawberries. I said, how much are they? He goes, I don't know. I said, you're about to find out. Turn your ass around. Go tell me. He came back with different strawberries, right? Didn't get the other ones. They were both organic. They were both the same, whatever it was. But he looked at these other ones and I said, don't ever bring anything and put in this cart unless you know how much it is. We're dealing with that right now. I've got a kiddo who's just figured out how to use Apple Pay on his phone in a vending machine at his where he works at a park and rec thing. And I'm looking at those transactions coming in and he's saying, Dad, I'm weirdly, I'm over budget. I said, you spent 20 bucks on the vending machine in two days. What are you eating, you trash monster? <laughs> and and that those kinds of things that that little awareness, they just don't think about. And part of it, I think, is because money doesn't exist exist like it did when I was a kid, right? Money isn't green to my kids. They don't have a sense of green cash anymore. And when they're out of it, it just miraculously doesn't, isn't it supposed to just refill? Uh, and, and I think that that removes us a degree from financial responsibility when they don't have a sense of, of what it means and, and, further, and further from catching the drip, drip, drips. Absolutely. And, and with digital money, um, my problem with it is that also they seamlessly go from the world of videos, which you have fake money in there. You buy suns and moons and all this stuff and, and win points. And then they move into the world of, you know, the magic click away on, you know, Apple Pay or whatever debit card or whatever they're using. Um, without that accountability, which is why actually I work with a, I'm an advisor to a company called Greenlight where the kids have a debit card, but they're accountable. And you show them, this is what you're doing. So all of a sudden it's like, whoa, okay. Yeah, like I, I even if if they consider it as you, you know, even if it's just another digital buck is another point that they're keeping score, isn't it better to have more points than negative points? Like, let's go ahead and treat it a little bit like a game. Don't you want to save the points and earn more points? That's fine. I'm I'm okay with that. Let's talk about how to do it. Right. What about kids getting jobs? Uh, my whole thing with kids is to teach them how to earn, save, spend, and share, which is what you do with money, which is your social interaction with money. Now. I start them on an allowance system within the household earning money. And I start them when they're really young, when they start saying, I want, I want. So you say, did you do your chores within the household to earn your money? And, you know, it's an answer, yes or no. Well, if you didn't, then you don't have money. Because I want them to connect real world instances. There is no entitlement program out there. It's not just that I'm in a store and I whine and say that I want something. The way you parents get money is you earn it. So same thing with kids. Then I have them set up on a budget and it's a baby budget, you know, when they're young and they divide the budget into four different categories. One is 10% comes off the top of the money they earned as little ones uh, to go to charity. And then I take the remaining 90% and divide it into thirds. The next third is what I call quick cash, which is instant gratification. They worked hard. They get to spend some money and make their own choice. But it's, you know, you set the parameters if it's no or candy or whatever, then they can't. And then I show them how to push off instant gratification and save for something larger. They set a medium term goal which for little ones is a couple of weeks to save for something. And then long-term goals, the money goes away and eventually gets invested and you get them involved in what the stock market is. Now, it, does a three-year-old understand the concept of long-term savings? No, 
Does a 10-year-old understand the concept of long-term savings? No. Do the adults in America understand the concept of long-term savings? No. So you might as well teach them the habit. And then as they grow up, they start to do some jobs outside of the home. Obviously, you want them to be safe. So they're working with neighbors doing, you know, raking, whatever it is. And then when they're 16 and they can get uh, working papers in the United States, they can start having jobs. And I think it's really important. There's no way to teach a kid uh, the importance of money and how hard it is and the value of money than when they're working for, you know, $12 an hour, $10 an hour. And it's like, really, the designer jeans cost $150. i am going to have to work how long to get them? And that's what you start doing with the kids. So that it, that tells us about this. It, it like sets the table for a, a, a kiddo that is financially responsible and thus more resilient in times of divorce. Like you have a, a kid who's already set up on that program. Seems like a completely logical next step to to have the conversation about. Here's how life is going to change. What does that mean for your finances? Exactly. And the biggest thing in divorce is they want that security of knowing that they're going to be okay and that you're going to be okay. Because remember the emotional part of it. They they see mom and dad, you know, probably walking around the, the house crying and scary stuff. So on the money side of it, it, you have to be honest with them. No, we're not going to be able to afford summer camp, but this is what we can do. We can take day trips or we can do whatever. Get them involved in what that alternative could be. And yeah, the kids who are set up on this get it. They get it. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, they may be sad. They may be mad. But as you said earlier, they're not going to be surprised at divorce. Like they'll, they'll probably already know. They, they get it. Things are not going right. And as you say, they know other kids uh, who've been through this. This is fantastic. Thank you so much, Neil, for for hanging out with us. And and uh, you have uh, a, a lot of books uh, that are all about this kind of stuff. If you're interested, pick any one of Neil's 28 books from Money Doesn't Go on Trees to Money Still Doesn't Go on Trees to Smart Money in Be Money Smart in Tough Times. I mean, the list goes on and on. But you are working on number 29, and it's on gray divorce. Can you give us a setup on what, what that means and your perspective on it? Yeah, it's really interesting because the divorce, the divorce rate has doubled um, since 1990 for people who are 65 years and older. And that is really an unheard of phenomena. One in four divorces today are gray divorces. And a gray divorce is deemed to be 50 and above. Um, and there are several reasons. First of all, the millennials are getting married later. So obviously the divorce rate would be pushed out on that one. But it's more than that. The older generation is saying, hold it. I'm going to live for another 40 years. I don't even know this guy sitting across the table from me anymore. The kids are gone. I have nothing in common with him. I don't have to sit here and suffer anymore. What we had in common, we no longer have in common. And it's kind of interesting because 73% of those gray divorces are actually initiated by the women. Hmm. So a phenomena, yeah, that's very, very different. It's really interesting. Very interesting than we had before. And what I hear sometimes from the man's perspective on that is I never saw it coming. I thought I was providing. I was out there working. And I said, yeah. And in all these guys I talked to, I said, did you ever spend time with your wife? And they, it, it's like the fifth, sixth, seventh, 10th thing on the list. It's way back there. And from the woman's point of view is I no longer have anything in common. We had the kids in common. I was raising the kids. From their perspective, they tried to maintain connectivity, the relationship, the spark, the 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 love, the commitment, all of that. And it just went away. 
in in it's it's a million little cuts. It happens a million little times, and the next thing you know, there's this great divide. And it might not be that anybody did anything wrong. Sometimes I hear, well, he didn't cheat on me. He was a great provider. I just don't love him anymore. And the guy's like, I was a, I didn't cheat on her. I was a great provider. What did I do wrong? And I was like, it's not really you did wrong. You, you, you took your eye off the ball, right? Because you thought you were supposed to be focused on other things. Is that, is that what you're seeing? Totally. And, and I'm not talking about the guy who goes out and gets living jewelry you know, to replace the woman that's there. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the please pass the butter. And by the way, I want a divorce syndrome. You know, the one that happened without and, and Tipper Core. You know, they woke up one day, they looked at each other and said, you know what? We're just not growing together. We're growing apart and we're going to live for a very long time. So... Let's make different decisions. But what I think is interesting is that the woman initiates this. And by the way, she's at more risk economically than he is. So that's a big statement. That's a big phenomenon. And there really aren't enough books, whatever, out there to help that woman through that situation. Because she has to redesign her entire life. And in a lot of cases, she may not have been working. Oh, those are the cases when they come to me, I say, I know we're going through a divorce, but we're really talking about financial planning for the rest of your life. We need to get a financial planner in here right away. Because the decision on whether to keep the house or not, or get more in retirement or not, is a decision that you're not going to be able to recover from later. Because even though you might live another 10, 20, 30, 40 years, if you're not necessarily working in that time frame, these decisions are very difficult to recover from and you're not going to get it all, right? So do you want to have cash flow? Do you want to be house poor? You know, you're in the big house, but you don't have the retirement and then you have to sell the house down the road. What happens if it's on a down market? There's all these what if scary things. So do we downsize now? get a flow of income so we can live a different lifestyle, but we know it's going to be there. These are the conversations we're having with the financial planner. And when we're looking at all these different assets and how to divide it up and people forget alimony stops when the other person dies. So are you willing to take one in the or hand or stops working or, or, or retirement? You can't be, right. You can't be forced to work. So one in the hand versus two in the bush. Do we take less now in a lump sum and now you're financially responsible, which is really scary. People like the security blanket of, oh, I'm going to get a check every month. But you might not get that check every month. And the further in time away from where you are today, it's easier to think I'll be better off. So it's very hard to settle a case and say you're getting a lump sum today where it's easier to sell a case that says, okay, you're going to get a check every month for five years and then you're going to get a lump sum. or you know, so, But be careful of that because five years from now, you might not be in a better financial place. You might not really have that security. So you got to think that through on these gray divorces. It's, it's, a different, it's a different animal. Absolutely. And you don't also have the situation with kids. You know, you're not deciding who's going to be the parent who's responsible for the kid. College is paid for. I mean, this is a later in life divorce. It's a very, very different situation, as you're saying, Seth. And that's the, we got on this because you were telling us about the book. Oh, did I get <laughs> and, off? And that's sorry. what the book is about. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. We did get off. Objection, yes, Your Honor. You, you guys are doing great. The book, yeah, exactly. Thank you, Seth. Um, he's wearing a suit. Leave him alone. <laughs> yeah. That the book empowers women to take a look at their life before, during, and after a gray divorce. And I come at it from obviously the financial empowerment side of how are you going to design it? What is it going to look like? What's important? And how to have those conversations, not only with him, but to have them with your attorney and what are again, what are those things going to look at, look like? How do you prepare yourself to sit down with Seth? Uh, because the more prepared you are, the more that you've thought this through, 
the more helpful it's going to be to you, but also to Seth so that he can do his lawyering and not his coaching side. And what's it going to look like after divorce? And what does life really look like financially? So I come at it from the financial point because truthfully, if you're financially secure, you reduce your stress and you're way able to handle the emotional side of it rather than the panic that usually takes place when divorce, what what am I doing? Oh, uh, you know, I can't cope. There's a lot going on uh, to unpack in that subject. And uh, you have a catalog of uh, trusted books and resources that you have written indicates people, you should go check out this book. It's coming, but there is no shortage of other stuff to look at from our fantastic guest, Neil Godfrey, today. Thank you so much, Neil, for sitting down with us. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. We sure appreciate your time and attention. Uh, don't forget, if you have any questions, you can head over to howtosplitatoaster.com. There's a big question button. Ask a question. You want to get your question in for the lawyer about financial topics, raising financially uh, uh, competent kids. We'll get those questions answered one way or another. Howtosplitatoaster.com. Thank you, everybody. On behalf of Neil Godfrey and America's favorite divorce attorney, Seth Nelson, I'm Pete Wright. And we'll catch you right back here next week on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.